0: My name is Stephen, and I suppose really all you need to know about me is that I come to you a selfish, self-absorbed sinner whose life was forever changed when I met Jesus at a small community college in Augusta, Georgia. And ever since then, the past 20 years, I have been following him, and his journey has brought me to a wonderful wife who loves me very much three uh, awesome kids, and brings me to worship him today with you. And so I'm glad to be here. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn to Mark chapter 5, or if you do not, uh, Pew Bible on page 840. You'll find Mark chapter 5. As you're finding your way there, I just want to give a little context of where we're going to do. We're actually going to look at the entire chapter of Mark. We're going to read it in its entirety in just a few minutes. Uh, But before we do so, Mark 4 is a very famous story, the account where Jesus calms the storm. Uh, You probably remember from children's stories or in Sunday school, but the storm is raging. Jesus speaks, especially my son's favorite Bible story. He loves to interact and say, I can say, Grantham, what did Jesus say? And he says, Peace! Be still. And I don't know if Jesus actually did the hand motion, but I suppose in child's mind, we visualize lots of things. But the storm has been uh, calmed. The disciples are probably, or not probably, we you know from Scripture they're terrified. They're not just terrified because they thought they were going to die. The Bible actually says they were terrified of Jesus because they're saying, who is this? Did you guys see this? This guy just spoke to the winds and the waves, and it stopped. So they're trying to process that. Then they come to shore, and that brings us to Mark 5. So, please follow along with me as I read to us from Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him any more, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as, and he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And, when, and he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, Who touched me? come Kamai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Please pray with me. Father, we recognize that your word is just that. It is your word. And it will abide forever. And we thank You for that. And so as we come into Your presence, Lord, we pray that You would give us ears to hear what You have to say. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One of the joys of coming to a different church to preach is getting to meet people. One of the frustrations is not really knowing... A lot of you personally, not knowing what your struggles are, or what your joys are, or what you're facing in life at this particular uh, moment, as you not really knowing that about me. But I would say this, that this chapter reminds us that this world has fallen. It's broken. It's not the way it should be. Even if you choose not to believe in God and not to believe in Jesus, defy anyone to tell me that this world is okay. Just watch any news station almost any hour of the day, and answer that question, regretfully, Will come to you. And it's because people are alienated from God because of our sin. We're alienated from each other. We are um, constantly facing illnesses, sicknesses. Our loved ones are facing struggles that we hate seeing them go through. And regretfully, as long as Jesus tarries, people will die. So I asked you this morning. Have you ever been spiritually oppressed or felt like you were being spiritually attacked? If you're a Christian here this morning, is there ever a time in your life where you can say, you know, I really just feel like Satan's doing something here. I'm under attack. You know, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so that led you to cry out to Jesus. Or perhaps you had a health issue. Um, you know, Maybe you were diagnosed with an illness. Maybe you are doing great and you go to your regular checkup and then all of a sudden you get this devastating news. And so what do you do? You cry out to God. God, help me. Save me. Heal me of this. Or many of us in here are probably parents or uh, have loved ones that we care deeply about. Have you ever seen one of them face something? And it's just gut-wrenching, isn't it, to watch them suffer. This chapter details three separate people, three different circumstances, Uh, three different problems, and yet I would say two things united them. Number one, they were all desperate. I think you can gather that from reading the account this morning. And number two, they all fell before Jesus. And so that's the phrase we're going to kind of consider this morning. And I'm going to propose that we do that. What does it mean to fall before Jesus? I'm going to do that by asking three simple questions. I believe there's an outline in your uh, bulletin if you would like to uh, follow along or if you're a note taker. But the first question to ask is this. Why did these specific people fall before Jesus? So go back, if you look back in your scripture, chapter 5, the person, first person that we met who fell before Jesus is described to us as, and I say this not lightly at all, a very pitiful man, is he not? He's described as a man who is out of the tombs, filled with an unclean spirit. No one could bind him, so people were literally putting chains on him out of fear for what he would probably do to himself, also what he possibly could do to them to them or to their children. But no one had the strength to seduce him. He kept breaking the chains. He'd walk among the tombs, the scripture says, day and night, crying out and wailing. You can almost picture the parents of that town, can't you? Uh, telling their children, we don't play over there, okay? You can play with little Johnny over here, but we don't go on this side of town because of this poor man. the first thing the significance we learn is in verse 2 it says that he had an unclean spirit some translations of the Bible say an evil spirit Uh, personally I think that unclean is the best way to translate it Uh, that really is what the word is in the Greek and it has a meaning in the Jewish ceremonial sense that to be unclean as in breaking the Levitical laws now the truth is us 21st century westerners we could care less about that Okay, so he was unclean you know so what well try to think like a Okay first century Jewish person to be unclean was disastrous because it meant that you were cut off you were alienated from God it was the worst thing that could happen to a person and Mark tells us if we look close enough not just one way but actually four ways that this man would have been considered unclean first one we already read he had an unclean spirit actually a multitude of them living in him number two he lived among the tombs he lived among the dead and again that was again against the Jewish law. Um, that was the worst thing that could happen. Obviously, Jewish people would touch dead people in battle, but they would be unclean for a period of time. They'd have to go through the process of making themselves clean again. Uh, number three, this man we're told lived in the Decapolis, which was largely a Gentile region. And again, for Jews, Gentiles, unclean. Don't associate with them. You don't spend time with them. And then number four, he lived near people who raised pigs. Again, me being from the south, that means nothing to me. You know, I've grown up eating porky pig all my life, you know, I'm going to barbecue. But for Jewish people, if you read in Leviticus 11, verses 7 and 8, it tells us that for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, pigs were an unclean animal. And God said specifically, you do not eat it. You do not touch it. It will make you unclean. So there's four reasons why this guy was unclean. So Jesus gets there. He steps out of the boat. And in verse 6, it says that the man immediately ran up to him and fell down before him. Now, as I was reading about this passage, someone suggested that the man fell before Jesus because the evil spirits inside of this man recognized Jesus as being God in the flesh and immediately fell before, uh, really as an act of... Submission, Not worship, was an act of, of submission. Because obviously God is God. And Satan will bow to God. As will all demons one day. Others have proposed that while this man was deeply disur- disturbed and possessed by an evil spirit, that perhaps there was still something in him, a little shred of his humanity, that was longing for help, longing for healing. And so he sees his opportunity in Jesus. And so he runs with all his might and falls down. Regardless of the specific reason, what is important, is that phrase and we will come back to it is that in verse 6 he fell before Jesus next person we meet or that Jesus met here was a Jewish ruler of the synagogue his name was Jairus Now, again, I learned from my studies that this man was not a rabbi. He uh, Actually, his responsibilities were to select the reader and the teachers in the synagogue and to examine the discourse of the public speakers to make sure everything was done with decency in accordance with ancestral usage. Um, That's a fancy way of saying that this guy's job was to make sure that worship was done in a decent and orderly fashion. You know what that means, don't you? He was Presbyterian. So, thank you very much. Awesome. If my youth were here, they would say, oh, another lame joke from Pastor Stephen." Uh, but the point is, this man was an important leader of his community. He was well-known. He was prominent. Uh, he was a man of good repute and dignity. And yet, as soon as we meet him, he is falling before the feet of a somewhat obscure traveling preacher and teacher. Why? Because this man wasn't just a man of repute in his um, neighborhood. He was a dad. And specifically, he was a dad with a sick child. More specifically, he was a dad with a sick child who was more than likely dying. And he did what any of us good parents would do. Go to whatever means we have to to get help for his child. Third person we meet kind of interrupts the dialogue with this man. Uh, We don't even know her name. We just know from her that she'd been suffering from a condition that had her bleeding for 12 years. I thought about that this week. 12 years. Okay? If you are 12 and younger, that's your whole life. If you're 24, that's half your life. If you're my age, it's a pretty substantial part, but right? the point is 12 years is a it, its a long, long time and sadly this woman is also pitiful because we're told that she went to all possible means to get healed. She spent everything, every last cent she had trying to get help and Mark tells us not only did she not get the leave that she was looking for, things were actually made worse. The condition worsened. Um, Again, though, remember how I told you it was disastrous for her, uh, for Jews to be considered um, unclean? Well, this woman would have been considered unclean. And it had very two specific implications for her. Number one, it meant she couldn't go to church. How about that? How would you like to be told that you can't come to worship because you're unclean? She couldn't. And so that's 12 years. She could not go to a worship service for 12 years. Number two, she was not allowed to be in public unless she told people that she was unclean. Because again, in Jewish culture and times, if I was unclean and I'm walking in public and I don't tell you and I, I shake Dale's hand, I've now made him unclean. So in order to avoid that, I have to walk around publicly saying, hey, don't touch me, I'm unclean. And can you imagine the shame that goes along with that? Uh, the embarrassment having to say? I mean, here she's probably... Hungry, Man, I don't have anything to eat. But do I really want to go in public again? Telling people, unclean, unclean, unclean. I just want to look for bread and some fruit. Unclean. So you can imagine the shame and the desperation she felt. She was willing to go out in public and touch the garments of this teacher. She had obviously heard about Jesus, we are told. And we're also told that she literally thought to herself, maybe if I just touch his garment, that that'll be enough. Maybe that will heal me. Obviously, she was exercising faith. Um, a small tangent, but a worthy tangent right now is this. Um, remember, I just mentioned if she would, according to Jewish customs, she should have made Jesus unclean. Obviously, that's not what happened because when someone meets Jesus, really meets Jesus, that's not what happens. We don't taint Jesus with our sin. Jesus makes us holy. By his holiness. That is what happens. And it's, it's what happened to this uh, woman. I would say that the one word that unites all three of these different people, as I mentioned, is, is desperation. Desperation for physical healing. Desperation for spiritual healing. Desperation for the well-being of someone that they cared about, a child. And so that led them to Jesus. I mentioned a few minutes ago that I have three children. My oldest son... His name's Grantham, and uh, he's a sweet, sweet kid. Uh, I Anita mean, knows him really well, I think she would see her shaking her head. I think she would agree to that. He's not perfect by any means, but he has a very gentle spirit about him. Um, I wish I had 20 just like him. and. Uh, but anyway, I tell you this because a few years ago, about four years ago, God saved him. So he's a believer. And then about a year ago, he woke Debbie and I up in the middle of the night just crying and screaming because he was having nightmares. And I'll be honest, I was super spiritual and I opened up my Bible and I prayed also. No, I was thinking, I really want to go back to sleep. It's just a nightmare. No big deal. You probably watched. I probably let you watch something that you shouldn't have watched. And so we put him back to bed. Well, this happened for a period of time. Thankfully, I'm a little slow, but then I started asking him questions. and. It got to the point where he was physically shaking and he he was terrified to go to sleep. He was thinking, if I go to sleep, I'm not going to wake up. And so I went to Scripture and I said, okay, let me ask you this. Let's read Psalms together. And there's a great Psalm. I should have looked it up. I think it's 121. I can look it up for you later if you want. But you've probably read it. It says that God who watches his people neither slumbers nor sleeps. The God who watches Israel is always watching. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that one of God's names is El Roy, which means the God who sees. And so I said, Grandpa, let me ask you this. When you're sleeping, when you're fast asleep, and you can't control your dreams, according to God's word, who's watching over you? God is. Okay, well, what about mom and dad? When we're fast asleep, and we can't see what you're doing, Who's watching us? Well, God is. And so slowly, God really used that scripture to remind him that he's got his best interest in mind. And I tell you that story to say that oftentimes we're desperate, aren't we? Sometimes it could be a child with a nightmare. It might be someone with a dying parent. It might be fear of losing a job. It might be fear of having to fire someone under your employment. But whatever it is, in our desperation, we should always go to Jesus, which leads me to the next point. Why? Why us? We saw these people fall before Jesus. Why should you and I? I want to suggest two reasons. There are lots of reasons to fall before Jesus, but I want to suggest very quickly two. Number one, we should fall before Jesus because the human condition has not changed. These were broken people that we just read about living in a broken world, and it hasn't changed, has it? Now, it's true that time, geography, and even culture separate us from the people that we read about here. However, when we read about the spiritually oppressed man, or this anxious and worried father, or when we read about this poor woman who's at her wit's end, aren't we reading about ourselves? Aren't we reading about ourselves in desperate situations? Aren't we anxious and worried about things that are beyond our control? If you are not, you are a better person than me, because I'm always anxious, and I'm always worrying, and I know I shouldn't be, because Jesus says, do not be anxious, and it gets frustrating, because it's Jesus, I'm not supposed to be anxious, but if I'm honest, I am. But as we face these things, it's because we live in a broken world, and we are also broken people. My wife and I have now entered that stage of life that many of you are either in or possibly have already passed before us. It's a very difficult time. It's that time where our parents are getting older and older and their health is failing, seems like, on a daily basis. And it's incredibly painful to watch doctor visit after doctor visit, surgery after surgery, uh, being admitted time and time again. That's a hard thing for them. It's a hard thing for us, but it's a great reminder that we're broken people, living in a broken world, and therefore we should be falling before Jesus. Another reason to fall before Jesus is, while it's true the human condition has not changed, there is a silver lining here. Jesus hasn't changed either. I don't know if you've ever read through the entire gospel accounts. I'm sure many of you probably have. If you've not, I challenge you to do that this week. And as you read through, you'll know that Jesus was compassionate. He was kind. He cared particularly about poor people and the widows and the orphans he was very patient with his disciples when they were so slow to get spiritual truths so I almost I almost see Jesus rolling in his eyes really are we still talking about this don't you guys get it F- in fairness he was harsh on the uh, religious leaders he was harsh on those uh, that were hypocrites he was harsh on those that were leading people astray um, if you have a Bible turn to Hebrews 13 13 verses 7 through 8 this is a great verse that you should underline or possibly memorize um, there's a in there we don't know who wrote the book of hebrews um it was written anonymously uh, but it is still god's word and there's some great truth this is a couple of chapters after that great hall of fame faith chapter in hebrews 11 but hebrews 13 7 through 8 says the following it says remember your leaders who spoke the word of god to you so let me paraphrase that remember pastor west Remember your elders. Remember the deacons, the diaconites. Remember your Sunday school teachers. Remember your teachers at Westminster Academy. Remember anyone that God has brought into your life to teach you truths of God's Word. Remember them. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Again, I think it's interesting that it says don't imitate their life, but imitate what? Their faith. And then verse 8 is the reason why. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus doesn't change. He brought hope to a hopeless situation for this woman and for Jairus and for this demon-possessed man. He brings hope today. If you are here this morning, I hope that you have tasted that hope. I hope you know that while you may face an insurmountable challenge in your life, as we're about to see in a few minutes, you don't face it alone. You face it with a living hope. I've been re- recently rereading about um, a pretty famous author of the 20th century, um, C.S. Lewis. I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with him. And C.S. Lewis was a bachelor most of his life. But when he was 58, he actually met and married a woman by the name of Joy. And sadly, uh, they were married for about four years, and then she died of cancer. Um, he wrote about his his pain and suffering during that time in a, in a book called Grief Observed. But there was a movie several years ago about this, and I just actually finished watching the movie last night. And there's a very powerful scene in that movie where his wife is going through cancer and going through treatments, but there's a period where she's actually doing much better. And so as C.S. Lewis goes back to Oxford, back to his teaching post, he's talking to one of his... um, Uh, Fellow teachers, fellow pastors there, and the man says to him, meaning well, but says to him, You know, um, hey, I'm glad to hear that Joy is doing so much better. You know, um, I know you've been praying very, very hard. You know, obviously, you've been praying hard because God is answering your prayer. And then I love his response, C.S. Lewis's response. He says to him, He says, That's not why I pray. I don't pray so God will answer my prayer. I pray because I have to. I pray because I'm desperate. I pray because I don't know what else to do. My wife is dying before my eyes, and I don't know where to go. So I just express, and I pray. And then he goes on to say an amazing statement. He says, I don't think we change God with our prayers. He changes us. He changes me as I go to him. This is a man who experienced profound grief. Not just with his wife dying, but if you know anything about Lewis, you know that he his mother died when he was nine, and he had prayed fervently that God would save her. And that began about a 20, 30 year or 20 25-year odyssey of him becoming an atheist. And then God saved him years later. He faces almost a similar, maybe even worse, grief when his wife dies. But this time, instead of running away from God, he ran straight towards him. We should fall before Jesus because we're broken people and we're living in a broken world. And Jesus doesn't change. So what happens when we fall before Jesus? If this is, if I'm urging you to do this, what's going to happen? Again, many things that we could talk about, but let's go back to the text specifically and look at what happened with these people. First of all, if you look at Mark 5... Um, in verse 15, I want to reread that verse. It says that when they, talking about the townspeople, came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, <clears throat> excuse me, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. This is a great reminder that Jesus restores that which is broken. He fixes that which is seemingly unfixable. This man had been suffering severe effects of sin and demonic activity. We've already read about it. He was socially isolated. He was physically hurting himself. Uh, He was potentially hurting. It's not recorded that he hurt others, but he was obviously a possible threat to others. Uh, He was in just pitiful, pitiful shape. And he has a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And Jesus restores him. And restores him so much that the man is begging Jesus, let me come with you. I need to thank you in some capacity. And Jesus says, no. You want to thank me? You stay here and you tell everybody what God has done for you. That is how you thank me. But the point is is that Jesus restores us. He restores that which is broken. second reason that we should fall before Jesus is because he welcomes sinners into his family. Again, let's re-read verse 34. This is when the woman comes up to Jesus and Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. That is an extraordinary sentence. Because did you hear the first word that Jesus said to her? Daughter. We're never told this woman's name. She comes as an anonymous lawbreaker who is suffering a physical ailment in the form of this bleeding. But what is? how does she leave Jesus? She leaves as an adopted daughter of the King of Kings. Daughter. Go in peace. When he says go in peace, what does that imply? It implies that hostility is no longer there between us. You have been forgiven. You have been saved. It's also worth noting in the Greek that the word that is used here uh, for healing is actually a word that has a salvific sense to it. In other words, it's the same Greek word that you would use to talk about the salvation of a lost soul. All that to say that I think it is very clear that this woman's needs were not... Jesus didn't just meet her physical needs. He met her spiritual needs as well. Hence him saying, daughter, go in peace. So that is a reason that we should come to Jesus. He welcomes sinners into his family. The third reason we fall before Jesus is because He patiently walks with us and He leads us through every step of our lives. Uh, Again, let's go back to Jairus for just a second. Remember, he came up to Jesus and he asked Him, he said, Please, my daughter is dying. Will you come and lay your hands on her? Will you make her well? Well, Jesus agrees. And so, if you're Jairus, you're thinking, Yes, thank you, God. Thank you. He's going to come. Maybe there is hope for my little girl after all. And then the worst thing that could possibly happen, happens. This woman comes out of nowhere and starts interacting with Jesus. This woman who has a chronic condition has now been given priority over his daughter who has an acute condition. He has to be thinking to himself, are you kidding me? I mean, I feel bad for the lady and all, but... Her condition is chronic. My daughter is dying. It would be like if I took my daughter to the ER at Brandon today and because she was in an accident, and we think she's dying, and we go in, and as soon as we go in, they say, okay, okay, oh, but wait a minute, this gentleman's head over here is hurting kind of good, so we're going to take him first, and we'll come back to you just as soon as possible that would never happen I mean that's medical malpractice right but that's exactly what's going on but what does Jesus say to Jairus obviously Jesus being God knows what this man's thinking he looks at him in verse 36 and he says don't be afraid just believe then goes to the ruler's house. Obviously he deals with the crowds. He asks him to leave and he kills the little girl. The point is this. Jesus patiently walks with you on every aspect of your life. Whether you're in the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, he is always there with you non-stop seven and a half years I've been a pastor over at Redeemer Church, we've seen lots of wonderful things. We've seen, as I'm sure you have here, we've seen children come to faith. We've seen marriages restored. Uh, We're actually in the middle of a building. We're building a new building over there. There's a lot of exciting things happening going on. But about a year and a half ago, about a year and a half ago, I had a phone call. I was in Georgia with no pastor, with no parent, that no one ever wants to receive. And that is that a 17-year-old teenager in our youth had been killed in a car wreck. 17. This was a kid that loved Jesus so much. His name was Zach McCarthy. Some of you may know the family. But he died just like that. One minute, he was with his dad on what he calls the mandates, where he hangs out with each of his children on the, their birthday, uh, the day anyway. And then the next minute, they're getting the phone call to rush down to Tampa General. He never even made it to Tampa General. But I can tell you after observing that family, they have experienced this firsthand, and they love Jesus more than anything. I have no doubts that there have been dark moments for them. And I'll be honest, I had no clue what to say to them initially. I still sometimes shudder when I'm preaching because I catch their face. And maybe I said something that you're just thinking, oh, that's going to be painful. But the point is, they know that they know that they know that they're not alone. Jesus has been leading them and walking with them. And if they were here today, I have no doubt that they would say two things. It hurts beyond belief, and but we're not alone. Jesus is with us. Fourth, we should fall before Jesus. Because when we do, we lose ourselves in worship of Him. And I hope to tie up why I wanted to look at the whole passage right here. If you look at verses 6, 22, and 33, they all essentially say the same thing. They say that the man, that the woman, and that Jairus fell before Jesus two of these three words in the Greek are the same uh, root word the third word is a different word but they do essentially say the same thing which is to fall or kneel before someone however it's much deeper than that I actually think our translations do us this service here the word means to, have, to fall down with an element of worship associated with it. So really you could translate these three verses, 622 and 33, as they fell down before and worshipped at the feet of Jesus. People who have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus are never the same. If you hear this morning and you know Him, you know that it's a true statement. they are transformed. Forever and that transformation leads us to worship him, Jesus, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God who is with us. And here's just another interesting side note. If someone, if you're talking to a friend, maybe a non-Christian friend or family member, and they say to you, you know, Jesus never claimed deity. He never he was a good moral teacher, but he never claimed to be God. That's untrue. Uh, Jesus said, I am the Father one. There are many passages that you can go to. But take them to Mark five and show them this truth. Jesus allowed these people to give him what is only due to God alone. That is blasphemous. That would be like if I came to you this morning and said, thank you so much for having me here at the church, and now before you go, worship me and praise me before you leave. Okay, that's not going to (laughs) happen, so please don't call my church over there. But that would be insane. That would be ludicrous for me to do that, because I'm just a man. I am a man, but Jesus was not just a man. Again, I want to go back to C.S. Lewis. Many of you have probably heard this argument, the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. But C.S. Lewis liked to reason a lot. And so his reason was this. He said, "Listen." if Jesus was not God and he knew he was not God then he's the worst man who's ever lived he's a villain that means he was lying and he knew he was lying and he deceived lots of people he is the worst possible villain you can imagine or the other response is you know what Jesus wasn't lying he really thought he was God which means he was off his rocker he was crazy he was a lunatic he was a man who was not in his right mind but if neither one of those are true then that only leads one possibility he was telling the truth which means he's God. Which means he is Lord. And again, the fact that he would allow these people to worship him as they would worship God, that is incredible. That is a statement of deity here. So I'm gonna close with this. Three strangers, three different needs, and yet the answer was the same. Falling before Jesus. But what about you here this morning? I'm very thankful for your church. I have been on the receiving end of many blessings of your church. My children, two two my children have gone through uh, the academy over there. Anita will be praying for you right now for my daughter. Um, I love her, but um, she's uh, going to need some some lots of prayers. Um, but here's my, my question: Will you continue to be known as a church? that falls before Jesus. When people come in these doors to you, will they say, man, that's a church that loves Jesus Christ more than anything. Those people worship Jesus. They fall at His feet. These people deal with death by falling at the feet of Jesus. These people excel in life by falling at the feet of Jesus. As you face struggles and adversities, will you do that individually? Will you do that as family members? Men, speaking to you as dads, will you lead your families in family worship? Will you say, listen, join John"? Joshua, I don't care what the world's going to do out there, but me and my family, we will worship the Lord. We will fall at the feet of Jesus. After all, He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son Father, we thank You for this text in Mark 5, this encounters with Jairus the ruler and this poor man who was possessed with demons, as well as this unfortunate woman who suffered from this illness for 12 years. Father, we thank You for the encounter that they had with You. We thank You for the healing that You brought each of them and their families. And we recognize, God, that we are like them. We are fallen, sinful, selfish people. And yet, Jesus, You don't change. You're the same yesterday and today and forever. And we thank You for that. And so, Lord, as we get ready to leave this place in a few moments, may we continue daily to fall at Your feet. May we love You better than anything and anyone. May we love other people better than ourselves. And may we do it for Your glory and Yours alone. And we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.